If you've been with us, we are at the heart of what Jesus is calling the Sermon on the Mount, His greatest teaching in the New Testament. Uh, We are at the section that is considered the ethical section. It is the uh, how process. It is how we do what God is calling us to do. How do we live out the characteristics of Christ, which He explained in the Beatitudes at the beginning of Matthew 5, in our everyday life? How do we walk this out? How do we deal with circumstances and situations that are going to come in our lives uh, according to the way Christ would deal with them? Now, a couple of weeks ago, we saw that in, in Matthew 5, 17 through 20, Jesus really gave us the why answer. You know, the, the what answer was the Beatitudes. The why answer was found in 17 through 20. Why is this so important? Why does this make a difference? To me? Why uh, should I worry about these Beatitudes being a part of my life? And what he told us was, what he helped us understand, was that to his listeners... To be righteous meant you had to obey the law. That was the Old Testament principle. It was all about what you did. It was all about the outside. As long as you on the outside were doing the right things, everything was okay. But Jesus said the problem with that is the best that you could ever achieve as the Pharisees, the best of righteousness, clean on the outside, was never going to be good enough. You see, the law was never created to save us. That wasn't its purpose. It's not put there to bring about salvation. The law was put there to be a reflection of what God has called us to be on each of our lives. It's to be a guide. It's to direct us to a relationship to God. But by Jesus' day, that had turned around to where it had become nothing more than a list of rules. And what Jesus told us back in verses 17 through 20 is that that righteousness was never good enough, so Jesus is offering us a new righteousness. And this righteousness is not based on what we do It's based on who we know, Jesus Christ. It's based on us accepting Christ as our Lord and Savior. And when you ask Christ into your heart, He says, He gives you His righteousness because He fulfilled the law. Jesus lived a sinless life. If anyone had to fulfill the law to be saved, Jesus fulfilled it. But when we accept Christ, He gives us His righteousness. But he also gives us obligations that come with that righteousness, standards that come with that righteousness that many of us in the church not only ignore, we don't understand. And a lot of those have to do with how we live out what God's called us to do. Because you see, what Jesus said is that no longer is God just concerned about the things that we do. Now he's concerned about why we do them. Because you see, the righteousness of Christ is not about what you do. It's about a changed heart. See, the Pharisees and many people in church think that if I just do the right things and and if I just obey all the rules, then that is going to somehow work its way back into my heart and change my heart. And God said that's not the way it goes. You see, when you accept Christ, He comes in and replaces that old corrupted heart with a new heart. You are a new creation. And that new heart is being transformed. And as it is being transformed, it is changing you from the inside out. That is the righteousness of Christ. And since the heart is the key to being transformed, then the heart is pretty important when it comes to our relationship to God. And so what Jesus is saying is this new righteousness of God, this new standard of God, it is not just about what you do, it's about what takes place in the heart. Why you do it. The motives, the desires behind why you do it. And so the heart is very, very important. Because a corrupted heart, even though though you may not act on something, the thought of it is enough to corrupt your relationship to God. The thought of it is enough to destroy you. See, the Pharisees were contemplating just being okay on the outside. They never were concerned with the heart. 
Jesus changes it all around. He sets a higher standard. So as he explained that, then the rest of chapter 5, he gives six examples of what that looks like. Six examples of how you and I can look at what it means to have a transformed heart in a practical sense. And, and last week he looked at what is considered the foundational truth of civilized society. Most societies will tell you that one of the foundational building blocks is the sanctity of life. And so he looked at the sixth commandment, thou shalt not murder. And he talked about what that meant. Because you see, society, for society to be successful, for cultures to, to succeed and thrive, there has to be an understanding that all lives matter. That life counts, no matter in the womb, no matter in the end of life. Life has a value to it. And when society begins to determine that one life is more valuable than the other, or that one quality of life is more important than the other, then it begins to crumble. And so Jesus talked about murder, but he just didn't talk about the act of murder. See, Jesus exampled that new standard. And what was the new standard? Jesus said, maybe you've never murdered anyone, but if you have hatred in your heart, if you harbor anger in your heart, if you allow hatred to take root, then the consequences of that act, the hatred in your heart, is just as bad as if you murdered someone. And that's hard for us to wrap our head around. While the consequences in society may not be the same, you see, if you have hatred and anger in your heart, nobody may ever know. You may never act on it. So how can the consequences be the same? Well, if you murder someone, society hopefully is going to hold you accountable. But what Jesus is saying is when you hate in your heart, when you allow anger to take root in your heart, He holds you accountable. Because it is that hatred and anger that disrupts your relationship to God just as much as if you had murdered someone. You see, that hatred and anger in your heart will keep you from worshiping. That's the example he gave last week. He said, if you hate somebody, if you have something against a brother, and you come to church, you stop what you're doing. Because I don't want you to come to church and do it in vain. And doing it in vain is what you'll be doing if you have hatred in your heart. So he said, you stop worshiping, and you go make it right with a brother. Because Jesus was more concerned with a right relationship than a right ritual. That's how big a deal it was to Jesus. And now as we get to our passage today, he's going to look at what society considers the second most important building block. If sanctity of life is the first most important building block, the second in all of civilized society is always the family. He's going to talk about the importance, the key principles behind a strong home. And in doing so, he's going to look at an issue that most of us don't even like to talk about today. Most of us don't even consider it an issue but you'll be surprised what Jesus does. So look with me at Matthew chapter 5. Look what he says about this building block, this, this understanding of the family. And he's going to look at the seventh commandment, and that's how he's going to take us there. So we're going to start in verse 27. It says, You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. Now I want to stop there, because that's, that, that builds a foundation for everything else he's going to say. You have heard it said, seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Now, adultery is a word we don't even use today anymore. How many times, I want you to think back in the last year of your life, how many times have you ever heard someone say adultery? We don't call it that anymore because that word sounds too severe. What do we call it now? An affair. That sounds nice, doesn't it? A fling. Sexual relations outside of marriage. A sexual encounter. Some will even call it cheating. But we don't call it adultery anymore. But you see, Jesus considered adultery a big deal. The Old Testament took adultery seriously. Adultery, according to the book of Leviticus, is defined this way. Sexual relations between a married or single man and another man's wife or someone engaged to be married. 
It incorporates every time someone who is married has sexual relations with someone who is not their spouse. That's adultery. It's not a fling. It's not an affair. It's adultery. And God takes it serious. I remember reading about a group of students that were in fourth grade Sunday school and their teacher was trying to work them through uh, the Ten Commandments and, and trying to explain what the Ten Commandments meant. And, and one day she asked them on Sunday, she said, uh, what is the toughest commandment for you guys to follow on a daily basis? What's the toughest commandment not to break? And, and, and several of them were silent and they looked around and one little boy chimed up. He said, thou shalt not commit adultery. And the teacher thought for a minute, she said, now wait a minute. She said, you're in fourth grade. How can a fourth grader struggle with adultery? And then someone else said, yes, thou shalt not commit adultery. And before long, everyone in the room has said, thou shalt not commit adultery. Well, she realized that there probably was some difficulty in the translation. So she looked at the first little boy and she said, listen, what do you think it means to say thou shalt not commit adultery? Without missing a beat, he said, it means thou shalt not sass adults. Now, that's a good one. That's not it, but that's a good one. The Bible says in Leviticus that the punishment for adultery, no excuses, no explanation, no, no varying circumstances, the punishment for adultery for both participants was always death. Always death. Now it does cut down on any idea of reconciliation, but it also cuts out that repeated behavior. You don't have a problem with repeated adulterers in the Old Testament. The Bible takes it seriously. The punishment for both is death. This showed how important that God held it, how severe God understood the breaking of someone's marriage vow was. You see, He understood that the sanctity of marriage, the commitment of marriage, the foundation and covenant of marriage was very serious. The law said that adultery creates chaos and destroys the very fabric of the family. That's why it's the seventh commandment. Now you see, if you and I, think about it today, if we were picking ten important commandments, laws, rules that we would say govern our society, for most of us, adultery wouldn't even come in the top 15, much less the top 25. But Jesus sticks adultery right next to murder. That's how serious it was. But yet in our society today, no one even thinks about it. It's commonplace. We don't even blink an eye when people commit adultery, when people break their marriage vows. Matter of fact, we just, we just go on not even surprised. Statistics tell us that 60% of all married men and 40% of all married women will at some time in their marriage commit adultery. At some point in their marriage, they will have an affair. Now, I want you to hear me. I'm not naive enough to think that, that there's probably no one in this room that has had an affair or will have an affair. But for the vast majority of us, let's just be honest, for the vast majority of us, it's not going to be an issue. Hopefully most of you that are hearing me, most of us in the church, we understand our marriage vows and committed to our marriage vows. Even if you struggle with them, even if they're bad, it, you're not going to cheat on your spouse. As a matter of fact, some of you will never even be tempted. So when a pastor stands up and preaches about adultery, you can check out. And that's what happens a lot of times in church. When, if I was just preaching on verse 21, if I just said, or 27, I just said, adultery breaks God's heart. Most of us in this room would say, that's exactly right. And you would think of somebody that's committed adultery. You would think of somebody that's had an affair. And you would say, they, they are going to have to deal with the consequences of it. And we kind of pat ourselves. That's what the Pharisees did. They didn't struggle with adultery. And so Jesus doesn't end there. He takes it to another level. And this level, the standard that he takes it to, not only captures almost all of us, 
it's an issue that all of us probably struggle with or will struggle with sometime in our life. Because you see, Jesus said the issue is not just adultery. The issue is the heart that leads to adultery. Because you don't just go out all of a sudden and, and, and commit adultery. There is something in your heart that has been corrupted, an immorality in your heart that has been corrupted. And that corruption breaks God's heart and it breaks your relationship to God. And so Jesus begins to explain and understand what that is that happens. And while these consequences may not carry the same physical consequences of actually committing the act of adultery, the spiritual consequences are just as bad. The spiritual consequences of what Jesus is going to lay out goes to the very heart of what it means to be a believer. You see, Jesus tells us, in verse 28, that the battleground most of us struggle with is in the mind. Let's keep reading. Listen to what he says. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, Jesus' is new standard, the old standard, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, the new righteousness, that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Wow. Wow. Now, I know, listen. I know people say, well, that leaves the women out. Because he didn't say if a woman looks at a man lustfully, then she's committed wrong. He's talking about believers. You could change it and say, if any believer looks at someone of the opposite sex lustfully, they have committed adultery with them in their heart. You see what Jesus is saying? Now, please hear me. That when we have a desire for another person, a person that you're not married to, even if it's only in your mind, it's just as corrupting to our hearts as committing the act. And he's also warning us that what it does is the moment you begin to accept it in the mind, the way sin works, you begin to accept it in your heart, that opens the door for you committing it later. That opens the door for you to, to, to act out on it physically. And let me break it down so that there's no confusion because I know there's a lot of confusion when you talk about lust and you talk about looking at others sexually. He's not talking about noticing that someone is handsome. He's not talking about seeing someone at work or school or out and around and notice that they are a very pretty person. He's not talking about encountering somebody in a seductive way. You know, you're on the beach and somebody walks by. You know, you ladies are on the beach and some guy walks by in a thong and, you know... Hopefully you're sick, but if not, you know, maybe he, it, you can't be held responsible for that. If that was the case, if we were held responsible for everything that we encounter that has sexual content, then you and I are in trouble because we live in a sexually charged environment. We'd have to be, you know, the Pharisees in that day, in Jesus' day, they had a group of them that they nicknamed the black and blue Pharisees because they put things over their eyes because they didn't want to sin with their eyes. And so they walked around bumping into everything. That's why they were called the black and blue Pharisees, because they ran into everything. They fell over. That's the way we would have to live our lives. That's not what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying, and, and if you look at the word there, the word look, when you look at someone, the word look there means purposeful. It's a continued action. It means to fix your eyes, to fix your thoughts on someone. See, it's not just about a casual glance. This is an intended look, a committed look at someone to inflame lust and passions. See, it's looking at someone in order to stimulate your lust. It's not the original encounter. I used to tell young people all the time when I teach young people, the sin doesn't happen when you encounter them. You're walking down the beach and, and Mr. Thong goes by or Miss Bikini walks by and has a nice figure. It's not a sin to walk by them and to notice that they're, what they're wearing. 
The sin takes place when you turn around and you look some more. I mean, honestly. You see, the sin takes place, and that's what Jesus is saying, when you look, when you have an intended, make a purposeful decision to look at something that you know is going to inflame your lust. You know it's going to inflame your passion. When you do that, you are giving in to a corrupted heart. When we allow our lust to control us, it corrupts us from the inside out. See, it's not that casual thought that pops into your mind and it's pushed out. He's saying this is something that we allow to flourish. And, and even when we go beyond the casual look, when we go search for things and look for things to inflame our passion. Understand, it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted. Everybody is going to be tempted. The sin takes place when you give in to that temptation. Listen to what James says in James 1, 14. For each one of us is tempted by his own evil desire. We can be dragged away and enticed, and then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's fully grown, gives birth to death. You see, he's basically saying, understand that when you look at someone lustfully, Jesus takes it serious. You are allowing that sin to take root in your heart. You're allowing that corruption to take root in your heart, and it will almost always begin to consume you because that's the way sin works. Sin is not satisfied with just a little area of your life. The moment you give it a little area, and this is what happens to believers. I think, I got it under control, Pastor. I, I can look just a little, and I got it under control. There's no such thing. Because the more you feed that sin, the hungrier it gets, and the more it begins to consume other areas of your life. Now, I want you to hear this, and this is the, the key thing that I'm going to say this morning. Looking at someone lustfully does not cause you to commit adultery by looking. You see, it starts when you commit adultery in your heart. See, it's not the lustful looking that causes sin in the heart. It's sin in the heart that causes the lustful looking. You see, the lustful looking is just a sign of what's inside of your heart. It's an expression of a heart that's already struggling with immorality. It's an expression of the heart that's already struggling with sin that's allowed to take over. The word lust there, just in case you're confused, means overmastering desire for something that's not ours. A controlling desire for something that's not ours. Now you can lust after all kinds of things, but in the context that Jesus is giving here, he is talking about sexual desire. He's talking about overmastering sexual desire for something that's not ours. Now, listen, I understand that that's a, it's incredibly hard standard to follow. Today, you and I are bombarded like never before with blatant sexuality. From everything from magazines to, to television to books to movies to music to the Internet. I can't imagine how difficult it is for young people today when the internet is... It, it, you, you stumble across pornography. And it'd be real easy here to stop and chase a rabbit about the dangers of pornography or, or even to talk about how we dress or how we talk that opens the door to lust. But I don't want to deal with the causes. I, I want you to stay focused on the heart because it's the heart where the issue is. It's real easy for us to see all of this stuff and be overwhelmed to the point that we just want to give up. 
And that's what a lot of Christians do. You see, a lot of Christians, they rationalize that I'm just going to let a little in because, because it's so hard. And as long as I just let a little in, I'll still be better than most of the people around me that are giving in to all of these things, that watch all these things, that hear all these things, that allow lust to control their heart. I'm just going to give in to a little thing. And we excuse it and we rationalize it. And then we wonder when our marriages and relationships fall apart, what happened? Not to mention the effects that it has on your relationship to God. You see, some of you are wondering why you can't come to church and focus on God. It's because your focus has been on something that is not yours all week. Trying to possess something, to have something, to feed a desire in your heart that is not natural and not given by God. It's part of your nature. I've heard men, listen, I've heard men say, what's the big deal? Just because I can't eat doesn't mean I can't look at the menu, right? So what you're telling me is that when you stood before all of those witnesses with your spouse in front of God and you made a vow or commitment to be faithful to that person till death do you part, you were only talking about the physical faithfulness? You're only talking about them being faithful in an act, not your whole body. Did you think that that your body didn't count in that? Your mind doesn't count in that? Because you see, when you lust, what you are physically doing, listen to this. When you lust, you are replacing your spouse with someone else. You are giving the place that you committed to your spouse to somebody else. You're putting another man or another woman where your spouse is supposed to be. And listen Whether you're replacing them in your bed or your head, Jesus says it's the same thing. Affairs always happen between the ears before they ever get between the sheets. The Bible says, guard your heart. Protect your heart. It is your source of purity. It is your source of life. It is where the transformation into Christ is taking place. And if you allow the sin to corrupt your heart, it is going to thwart your relationship with God. It is going to hinder your growth. I mean, there's no better example in the Bible than King David. Most of you know the story of David in 2 Samuel. David, uh, king of Israel, he had two wives. He had Michael who was uh, given to him, Saul's daughter. He had Abigail who was a uh, wife that he really didn't need. And if you want to go back and look, David's problems didn't start when he saw Bathsheba. It started when he encountered Abigail. Abigail was another man's wife. David flirted with her. She flirted back. The, The man who she was married to was so distraught after seeing the king flirt that he killed himself. And on the same day he killed himself, David said, Hey, now that you don't have a husband, why don't you marry me? So David had issues in his heart. But we jumped to Bathsheba. David's out on his roof and, and he's enjoying the, the evening and the coolness of the air and he glances around and, and as he glances over to a home that's next to him, there is a beautiful woman taking a bath on her roof. Now I know a lot of people like to say, well, she ain't got no business taking a bath on a roof. It's her fault. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter what she was doing. Because see, you're not responsible for what other people do. That's why when you try to blame, oh, those women shouldn't dress that way. You shouldn't be lusting after them. David's Roman. You see, it wasn't David's fault that he saw her. But David didn't see her and walk away. Why? Because he was struggling with an immoral heart. And David went back and looked again, and he looked again, and then he allowed it to inflame his passion. And he called a servant and said, Go find out that woman's name. And he brought her to the palace, knowing that she was a married woman, and he slept with her. 
So he allowed the look to progress to an act. Why? Because he didn't have the strength and the ability, even as a man after God's own heart, to walk away. Because he didn't recognize the destructive nature of the look. And if you don't know the story, him following through with that act destroyed his kingdom. The nation of Israel was never the same from that day forward. It destroyed his family. His family was torn apart for generations. And it destroyed his relationship to God. See, there are consequences to a look. There are consequences. Maybe he should have heeded Job's warning when Job said in Job 31.1, For I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully at a girl. You see, so many of us as believers don't realize the danger that is already lurking in your heart. And the evidence of that danger comes out with lustful looking. You see, if you're struggling with lust, it's not that you've got a problem with your eyes. It's you've got a heart problem. And the more you look, the more that goes back and feeds into that immorality that's already in your heart. See, many of us who never commit the physical act of adultery are already sowing the seeds of a lustful heart. You see, you may think, and listen, lust is a silent sin. It's one of those sins that we think nobody will ever find out, nobody knows, so what does it hurt? God knows. And it breaks his heart. It destroys him. That his child, this loving child that he gave his son for, is willing to sacrifice a transformed heart that he freely gives you for a heart that is corrupted and immoral. But listen, If you think nobody else will find out, you're naive. If you don't think that your struggle with lust is not affecting the way that you look and treat your spouse, you're not paying attention. See, we need to understand and admit to ourselves that we have a struggle. So what is the solution? See, Jesus never just outlines a problem without giving us a solution. So he gives us a solution. Look what he keeps saying. Verse 29, verse that most of us have heard before. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better to lose one part of your body than the whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it's better for you to lose one part of your body than the whole body to go to hell. So what's Jesus' answer? Get yourself a saw, get yourself a poker. Amen? Sadly, down through time, there were people that took this literally. People that interpreted it literally. Clearly, Jesus is using hyperbole. Clearly, he is talking in hyperbolic language so that we will understand the seriousness of this. And it really wouldn't do much good anyway if you cut your hand off or you poked your eye out because the problem with sin isn't in your your hand, it's in your heart. See, what Jesus is really saying here, what he's suggesting is what we need to do is to get the object of lust, whatever it is that's causing us to lust, as far away from us as possible. Or you get as far away from it as possible. He's saying don't dance around with it, don't play with it, don't don't allow it into your life. Get away from it, even if that means giving up something that's very dear to you. That's what the right hand, the right eye. In the Old Testament, anytime they mentioned something with the right, the right hand, the right eye, the right foot, they were talking about something that identified how important they were. Something that was precious to them. 
That's where the terminology comes from ancient Rome, where they talked about, I'd give my right eye for that. When somebody says, I'd give my right eye for that, I'd give my right arm for that. You know where that phrase comes from? It means I'd give up all that's important to me. That what, I, what you have is so important, I'd be, giving, I'd be willing to give up whatever it is that I hold dear to have it. What Jesus is saying is you've got to come to the point where you understand that you're willing to give up whatever it is that you hold dear to get it out of your life because that struggle with lust is that important. You've got to be willing to walk away It's better for us to lose something that's dearest to us than to lose our relationship to God, to allow our relationship to God to be diminished. He uses two terms here. He says, if it causes you to stumble, if it causes you to sin, the the literal translation of that, cause you to stumble, is bait trap. It's it's a picture of what we would call a mouse trap. It's a picture of something, uh, what they called a bait stick. They would set bait and they would have a stick, and when you grab the bait, the stick would slap down on you. And Jesus is saying, if there's anything in your life that's luring you to lust, anything in your life that is drawing you in, that is trapping you morally, causing you to stay into sin, you need to eliminate it quickly and totally. Quickly. As soon as God lays it on your heart, and maybe this morning God's already laid it on your heart, some of the areas that you're allowing yourself to get into. If you're going to places, and if you're around people that are causing you to stumble into lust, get away from them and don't go to those places. That's how serious this is. Do you take your relationship to God seriously? You need to understand that lust is destroying it. Look by look. Jesus says, Get away from it. Get it out. See, I know men that struggle with internet pornography. They say, well, I can't help it. I've got to use my computer. No, you don't. You've got to use your computer. Put as many blocks as you can. Matter of fact, I, I tell you there's a great block that most men that struggle with pornography, the reason they struggle is because they really don't want to do the steps that it takes to get rid of it. You want to get rid of it every time set up a thing on your computer so that it comes up in your spouse's computer that every time you look at pornography, it sends them an alert. You can do that. You say, that's kind of embarrassing. That's a bit, is it important to you? You want to play around with it? You want to keep trying in your own power? Get it out. If there's a television show, if there's a kind of book or magazines that are causing you to lust, that are feeding into your lust, get them out of the house. He says, don't play around with it. Paul tells Timothy three times in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, flee sexual immorality. He tells the Corinthian church, flee sexual immorality. Remember the story of Joseph when we were looking at Joseph when Potiphar's wife showed up? No clothes on. No one will know. What did Joseph do? He ran. Run, Christian. Get away from it. And understand that that this is a battle of the mind, so sometimes it's not enough just to run. Sometimes it's not enough just to turn it off. Because what you've got to do is you've got to replace that corruption you're getting out of your mind with something good. So you know what you do? You need to get into the Word of God. The greatest weapon to allow you to withstand looking at lust is the Word of God. Memorize it. So what do I need to memorize? Memorize this passage. And every time, pray that the Holy Spirit, and there's a power in the Holy Spirit that wants you to change, that will lead you to change. Every time that you are drawn to that look, pray that the Holy Spirit will bring this passage to mind. Does it hurt to look? It does when we look in such a way that it stimulates our lust. Can we appreciate beauty? Yes, but leave it at that. See, Jesus is trying to remind us that both adultery and lust are problems of the heart. 
and a heart that's been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit can't tolerate that. You see, listen. As long as you and I live in this earth, there is a battle that goes on in your heart. Because we live in a fleshly, fallen body. It is the flesh. And that flesh desires the things of the flesh. It desires selfishness. It desires lust. Sexual immorality. That's, that's your flesh. And the way to defeat the flesh is not to beat it, you know, as, as some did in the Middle Ages. It's not to gouge your eyes out or to cover up and to cut your hands off. The way to beat your flesh is through the spirit in the heart. Like the old proverb goes, you got two people battling inside of you, and the one that wins is the one that you feed. So the question for you and I this morning, when it comes to lust, when it comes to looking, when it comes to adultery, which one are we feeding? Let's pray.